are going to continue the series we began a few weeks ago on the Old Testament book of Numbers. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 51. I'm not going to... Um, someone's calling. So uh, we're going to look at uh, uh, primarily the first few verses, and then I'm going to summarize the middle section because it's very repetitive and We'll, we'll talk about what's in there, and we'll also have a chance next week to look even more in depth at uh, the roles that each one of these uh, uh, tribes has around the uh, uh, tabernacle. And then we'll look at the end of the uh, 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 chapter as well to talk about uh, this issue of redemption. So, so far, what God has done is he's uh, told Moses that he needs to count the people. And so over the last couple of weeks, we looked at where they did a census and they counted uh, all of the tribes except one, and they didn't count uh, the Levites. And we're going to find out today why they didn't count the Levites and what the, the point of all that is. So uh, let me read to you to start out with uh, uh, Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 uh, through uh, verse 20, and then we'll... Uh, uh, we'll jump in to, to clarify some things. So first, Numbers 3, 11 through 20. This is the word of God. We should hear, hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel. Instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel, the Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by, by fathers' houses and by clans, every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their name, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And they, these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni and Shimei, and the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram and Izhar, Hebron and Uziel, and the sons of Merari by their clans. And I wonder, based on their names, if they were twins, Molly and Mushy. Poor Mushy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I'm sure everywhere he went, when he introduced himself, people would say, is that a family name? <laughs> That's how you know you've given your kid a weird name when uh, when people say that. In Hebrew, it's probably not that weird. There's, you know, it's like Jim or something. But these are the clans of the Levites by their father's houses. So <clears throat> what we what we need to do today is look at some of the themes that arise out of this and make some application to to what's going on. Because one of the things. Uh, that you have to see as we as we look at this text is that God has purpose in the counting. God has purpose in the giving of these jobs. God has purpose in all of these things that he's doing. And this, those purposes are eternal purposes. They're not just for those people, but they're for us uh, as well. So uh, we, we need to kind of unpack a little bit here of what's going on. AJ, put my notes up there. So we'll see three big themes emerge in this passage. First, the importance of memory, secondly, the value of substitution, and thirdly, uh, the value uh, of work. Now, the, this thing about memory is something that's pretty profound and something that, that we, we need to spend some time on because the, the fact of the matter is one thing that is true of human beings, one thing that's true of all of us is we forget. Now, 
Now, and I'm not talking about you forget, you know, you, you get home from the grocery store and you're unpacking it and you're like, I forgot to get creamer for the coffee. You know, not, not that kind of forgetting. What I'm talking about is the kind of forgetting that really matters because here you are in church this morning and, and you have a sense that there's a God in the universe and this God has to do with you. And this God loves you. And, and, and maybe even you've come to grips with the fact that even in your sin, this God loves you and he has provided for you a redeemer in Jesus Christ. And you have a sense of hope and joy. You have a sense of healing. Even if you're grief stricken today, you can have some hope in the midst of that because you know that's what's true. But on 1030, 1030 Wednesday morning, when your boss treats you like a piece of dirt or uh, something terrible happens to you, the fact that God loves you, that he is for you, is out the window. Right? So that's, so that's what I'm talking about, is that we need to be reminded and we need to be have places where we have these uh, reminders that are given to us of what's real and what's true and what matters. And so what's going on here in this text is God is providing different ways and different things for memory. In fact, the very, the fact that, as we said a few weeks ago, that the tabernacle's right there in the middle of the people of God. They're all camped around it. That every time they get up, they look, they see the temple or the, the tabernacle. That is a reminder to them of the fact that their God is there. But not only that, but that their God saves. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God identified as, I am the God who delivered you. I am the God who redeemed you from slavery. I am the God who saved you. The reason for that is the people need to be reminded over and over and over again that that not only that uh, who they are, that they're a delivered people, but that there is a God who delivers and that he has saved them, that he is saving them, and that he will ultimately save them in the end. And that has to be pressed upon people all the time because it slides off our minds. And so we have this kind of odd thing here where God says that the Levites now are going to be the firstborn. Now, if you know anything about uh, the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, you know that Reuben was the firstborn. So what's all this business about firstborn? Well, let me, let me help you understand what's going on here. We know that the 10th plague there in Egypt is where God came and he said, if you don't have the blood smeared over your doorposts and on your doorposts, uh, the angel of death will come by and will take the firstborn, the firstborn male out of your family, the firstborn male of your children, the firstborn male even of all your animals. And so what God is saying here is, as a perpetual reminder of that, the firstborn male of all the livestock and of every family belongs to the Lord. And so, so what would happen here is, uh, because, uh, unless God chose the Levites to act as that, to stand in the place of everybody else, every one of, everybody who had a male child, their firstborn male child, would end up being like Samuel. You know, you, you, it, there's a story in the Bible of a woman who is infertile. She cries out to God. She prays, she prays, she prays. And she tells God that if God will give her a son, she'll give him back. And that he'll spend his life serving God there in the tabernacle. That's Samuel. Well, that would have been true for every single family. 
Every single family would have been in a situation that whenever they went to the, to the temple, they would have looked and they would have had to remember that they would have had to given their firstborn son to serve in the temple. And so when they go now to the temple and they look and they see a Levite there serving in, uh, in the tabernacle, they are reminded of the fact uh, that this God, not only did he redeem them, but that he redeemed them by uh, this uh, dr- dramatic act of the giving up of the firstborn. And so when they look there and they see the Levites working there, they recognize that the Levites are there uh, not only as a reminder that God redeemed them, but also as a reminder that God has value and substitution, right? So the very choosing of the firstborn to belong to the Lord was a way of remembering what God had done. God required the firstborn as an offering, yes, but mostly as a remembrance of what he had done. Next slide, please, AJ. So God chose the Levites to act as the firstborn for all of Israel so that in all of their dealing with God, the principles of memory and substitution were at work, right? So that's that's a pretty powerful picture. You know, God is communicating to them, you need to remember, but you also need to be taught that at every turn in their relationship with God, what was happening here was that someone stood in their place. Someone was a substitute. All those sacrifices that you know about in the Old Testament where somebody would come and they would lay their hands on that sheep or whatever, and they would lay their sin on it, and that sheep, lay their sin on that sheep, that sheep would be sacrificed. It was a substitute for the, for, uh, 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 the person there. Well, the Levites act now as a substitute for the firstborn. Do, do you, do you see some gospel in that? That we have a substitute, that we have someone who stood in our place, that we st- have someone who came and did that. But not only that, also there's the perpetual reminder here of the need for redemption. So, in a few weeks, we're going to do something different. Beginning the first Sunday in Advent and for the foreseeable future, we're going to have communion, the Lord's Supper, at every service. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, no, this service is so long already. So we're going to help you by locking the doors. Something I've always wanted to do. Now, we recognize, and we're going to do a lot more preparation on this. We're going to do a lot more teaching on this. It's change. And we know that that's that's difficult. Anytime you take a leadership class and you learn about leading for change, there's a bell curve on the people that you lead. There's 2.5% of people who will never accept any change. So I want you to raise your hands. We're going to identify you now, and we're not going to try to convince you, but we're going to try to convince everybody else. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, but the fact is, the Lord's Supper is many things, but one of the things it is for us is a remembrance. It helps us remember, oh, yeah, in a tangible way, Jesus Christ stood in my place. Oh, yeah, Jesus died for me. Oh, yeah, I needed to be redeemed. 
And so this whole thing, uh, this, that it is a way for us every week when we gather together to pile up one more witness, one more place where we have a testimony to and a reminder and a powerful use of this work that God is, uh, it has done in saving us. We need to remember the God who loves us. We remember, need to remember the God who died for us and rose again for us. Just as, as the Old Testament people of God needed to be reminded of the God who had delivered them from slavery. But secondly, there's another principle at work in here that we need to, that we need to remember. It is important for us to see regularly the broken bread and, and, and the poured out cup for us. And the reason for that is that that reminds us that for our redemption, for us to be saved, for God to be the God who saves, a price had to be paid. We had to be redeemed. And that's why when you read this text, so what happens here is, is that they count the Levites and the Levite, and they count all the firstborn throughout all the other, uh, uh, tribes and the people. So the Levites will stand in the place of all the firstborn of all the other people. But there's a problem. There's a problem because All those listed among the Levites whom Moses and Aaron listed as the commandment of the Lord by clans, all males from a month old and upward, were 22,000. However, all of the firstborn males throughout the rest of the tribes, according to the number of names from a month old and upwards, was listed as 22,273. Esoteric, right? If you're in the 273, you're in trouble. There's no one to redeem you. Right? You're stuck. So God makes provision for them by adding this tax. Now, why would he add the tax, the five-shekel tax? This is what he said. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. Everyone has to be redeemed. No one gets uh, uh, to belong in the people of God without a price being paid. No one gets to be a part of the people of God without receiving fully the redemption that someone else stands in the place and pays for that. So either you get redeemed by a Levite or you get redeemed by the payment of the tax. But there is no redemption without the paying of a price. And someone else must do that. Someone else must pay the price. Now you hear that and that probably slides right off your heart. But I I want you to understand that the recognition that you need to be redeemed uh, is hard and humbling. Uh, we, we, as many of you know, are in the midst of a kitchen renovation, and we are hurrying up to get the kitchen renovated because, as we announce regularly, we have an inquirer's weekend coming up the first weekend in October, and uh, we always have a dessert party at our house at the end of inquirer's weekend. When Marty heard that announced a couple of weeks ago, she broke into a sweat. Because we need our, our kitchen's not quite done. It'll it'll be fine. Um, 
So yesterday in our kitchen, uh, a lot of sanding gets done on all the sheetrock mud. Now, if you've ever done anything like this, what you know is that means white dust is everywhere. And I mean in places you can't imagine. And so we're running around doing this, and I'm I'm starving. It's 2 o'clock. And when it's 2 o'clock and I haven't had anything to eat, it's difficult to be with me. And so we, we need to get some food and Steve. So what are we going to do? So we go to get some lunch and we're in this restaurant and, uh, one of the people working in the restaurant is a friend of mine. I say to hi to him. I introduce Marty to him because I wasn't sure whether she'd ever met him or not. And I knew immediately I was in trouble because he looked at me and he smiled and he put his hand over his heart. And he said, let me buy you lunch. I'm not about to do that. Because I think, and this is a dark part of my heart, I think, how can I let this man buy me lunch? I probably make five times what he makes. And I'm going to let him buy me lunch. He says... In my country, when the pastor comes to eat, we buy his lunch. To which I responded, well, you're in my country now. (laughs) 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 Right? Which, what you know, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? To have someone else pay the price for you means... There has to be some humility, right? That I have to receive what someone else has done for me. So the recognition here of the people of God is that they needed redeeming. They could not redeem themselves, and someone else had to do that for them. Lastly, the value of work. And when I said this at the 9 o'clock service, when I said I wanted to speak briefly about the value of work, about a third of the people in the room's eyes rolled in their heads. Uh, And the reason for that is because we have an ungodly and an unhealthy view of work. Uh, Also, uh, many of you work in jobs that are mind-numbingly difficult. But I'm going to tell you, and we're going to see here this week and next week, you want to talk about some mind-numbingly difficult jobs, just be glad you're not a Levite. (laughs) Okay? Because not only is there a census or counting of the tribe of the clans of Levi, but jobs and responsibilities are assigned. So uh, we read that Gershon, his tribe, his clan, guarded and took care of the tent, the hangings, and the cords. Next slide. Kohath guarded and took care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels, and the screens. And then Merari guarded the frames, bars, pillars, bases, and all their accessories for the tabernacle and for the court. So, so just imagine, and that some of these things that they're guarding, like some of these uh, accoutrements, some of these accessories in the temple, if, if you didn't handle them the right way, you died. So you think your job's hard? Just imagine your your job. You have your job. You're, you have one job. You're responsible for this tent peg. We should pray for the people who are camping at the church camp out this weekend. You're responsible for this tent peg. That's you pick when you stick that tent peg in the ground when we camp. 
and you pick that tent peg up when we move, and if you don't handle the tent peg the right way, you might die. So let's just look at an example, right? The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle with Elasaphan and the son of Uziel's chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, and the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priests minister, and the screen and all the service connected with these, right? That's their job. That's what they do. That's all they do. That's all they do. Um, one of the things that I enjoy doing when I have a few minutes to myself is, uh, especially this time of year, is I like to turn the television on to ESPN and turn the sound off and just imagine what these people are saying. <laughs> right? And so I caught a little bit this week of uh, the, a press conference for a football coach. That, his name is Nick Saban. He's the head coach of the University of Alabama. So I turned the sound off because I know what he's going to say before he says it. What he's going to say is, we're terrible, which they're not. They could actually probably beat some NFL teams. Uh, we're terrible. And this team, whoever it is they're playing, is the greatest team ever, and, which is a lie because they're going to crush them. I think they've they've beaten 67 unranked teams in a row, you know? And he's gruff and rough and I don't really I don't really care for him. He's a great coach and all that, but I don't I don't really care for him. So, I turn the sound off and I'm imagining what he's saying. But I get distracted because I notice he's standing at a podium and he's got his Alabama stuff on. But on the podium facing the crowd is a bottle, unopened bottle of Coke with the label turned to the camera and the crowd. So I'm just focused on the Coke. And I'm thinking it's somebody's job to put that Coke bottle on the podium. I'd like to meet them. I'd, I'd like to talk to them. I'd like to ask them what it's like to have that as a job. Do you like that job? Does Nick ever get mad at you because you put the Coke bottle in the wrong place? Probably. Have you ever thought about whether you can place that Coke bottle on the podium to the glory of God? I would say, yes, you can. Because you see what we what we see here is and what what is important about this. And we've spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about this issue that our God is a worker and that God values work and that work predates the fall and and that your work matters. And we reflect a lot of godlike characteristics when we work and any any job that is not um you know, inherently forbidden in the scriptures is, is a good and great and God-honoring job. But I want to take this and flip it the other way. The fact is, your job, your mind-numbingly difficult, boring, challenging job uh, has value. But it has value because you're doing it. Because you, as the Lord says here of the Levites, they're mine. You belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, where you are and what you are doing 
has inherent value, even if that means your job is carrying a tent peg. See, what we try to do is we try to add value to our work, or we try to carry around this kind of thing where we think, you know, this this job is more valuable than this job. But the fact is, if you belong to Jesus Christ, he has redeemed you, you are his The work has inherent value because you bring the value to the work because of the work of Christ in you. So rather than try to steal some value from the work, the truth of the matter is we bring value to the work because we are valuable because of who we belong to. And the Lord says this over and over and over again in this section of the scriptures is the Levites do this work. They're mine. They're mine. And when he says, they're mine, I am the Lord, he's closing it off. That's that's like saying he swears by himself that this is true, that they're his, and that's all that needs to be said about it. The same thing is true for us, right? What we need to see about our own lives and our own work is the value that's there is not what we bring to it or even ultimately what the work brings to it, but what what... The, the value is there because the Lord claims us in our work, in our being, in what we do as his own. And that is the inherent value because the value is summed up in the fact that we've been redeemed. We've had a price paid for us by a substitute. Someone else stood in our place and that value cannot be taken away and cannot be undermined. So, Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're looking for a job or you have a job that you find mind-numbingly difficult or uh, whatever, the the, the fact is the the work has value because you have value. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that today um, and to be grateful and remember uh, the fact that our God knows we don't remember these things. And yet he condescends to remind us constantly. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need a sense of this. Forgive us for uh, forgetting. Thank you that uh, you are consistently patient in reminding us of the truth. Forgive us uh, that um, uh, we are so easily distracted and knocked off course. Thank you that you condescend to give us reminders and pointers and things in time and in space to show us who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that uh, the value of our redemption and the value that you place upon us by the price that you have paid for us would encourage our hearts and move us. Lord, you know that work is hard. You know that... uh, uh, whether it's uh, the work in the home or outside the home or uh, volunteering or uh, just the work of being a faithful saint uh, is fraught with all sorts of challenges. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts by showing us the price that has been paid and the value that you place upon us. Help us. Give us grace. Um, help us. Remind us. Uh, regularly, moment by moment, of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Lord, we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.